on March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Okay, welcome here, Lance, our first uh, episode of Empty Frames. For this episode, we are going to go through a little bit of the timeline of this incredible theft, and I, and I don't say incredible trying to be complimentary. Well, we say that because when you do a search on most expensive art heist, the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist is typically number one. And right at the top here, I just want to mention that if you have any information about the stolen artworks or the investigation, please contact Anthony Amore, Director of Security for the Gardner Museum at theftatgardnermuseum.org. Now, we were contacted by our mysterious Mr. K, and through his resources, we are able to dive into this incredibly complex and elaborate case and uh, we will soon introduce everyone to Mr. K, uh, the man who approached us with the request to cover the heist. Before that, I want to say that one of the first things which stood out to me uh, was how amateur the crime itself appeared to be uh, with the haphazard way in which the art was you know cut from the frames, uh, the way the more valuable pieces were overlooked and you know almost three decades later, not a single one of the 13 has been found. So are we dealing with professionals trying to make it look amateur? You're not being arrested. This is a robbery. Don't give us any problems and you won't get hurt, was said to the guards by one of the robbers. Of course, they were dressed in police uniforms, both of the robbers dressed in police uniforms. The thieves handcuffed the guards, then wrapped duct tape around their hands, feet, and heads, leaving nose holes for breathing. They were then led to the museum's basement where one guard was secured to a lead pipe under a maintenance sink and the other was secured to a pipe under what appears to be an electrical panel next to the boiler room. And they stayed there until police arrived hours later at around 8.15 that morning. Now, the next day, on the 19th of March, the Boston Globe reports the value to be at about $200 million, which we know has gone up substantially since then. Uh, the theories, um, we can categorize them into some people think that all of the uh, the pieces of artwork exist. Some people think that they've been sold. Uh, some people don't believe that the artwork could have survived and it's been destroyed somehow. Yeah, I mean, they're out there not in the frames that are on the wall in the Gardner Museum. So they're not where they live. They're not home. 
And home is the Venetian-style palace located in the Fens neighborhood of Boston. This is where Isabella Stewart Gardner chose to publicly display her personal collection. And the empty frames are still on the wall, and it's because of her will that stipulated no paintings are to be moved from where she left them. You can still see those empty frames once containing the stolen paintings hanging there today. According to witnesses, some young adults were leaving a neighborhood St. Patrick's Day party. They noticed a hatchback vehicle parked on the road, and two men dressed in police uniforms were inside it. So, like you were saying, Lance, there's contradictions all over the place. First, you see these guys dressed as police officers robbing this place. You'd say, oh, well, that's somewhat professional. They got these police uniforms that's extremely illegal if you're not a policeman to have those uniforms to impersonate a police officer exactly so then you say well this is planned right but then well why the hell are they driving a hatchback a dodge daytona hatchback why wouldn't they have rented a van or driven a pickup truck or borrowed a friend's suv instead they're driving a hatchback they couldn't even fit the paintings in the car if they weren't cut out of the frames Right. This wasn't a getaway vehicle that was designed to, uh, to, to carry a massive amount of stuff. Everything pre and during the theft itself suggests of amateurism. But everything after, the fact that no one said anything and no one's been caught. I mean, people have said plenty, but no one's been caught based on the, the words of, of some individuals and suspects. And it's been 27 years, and the mystery hasn't been solved, and, and the pieces of artwork have not been recovered. So someone did something right. And it's become, it's become a legend in the area as well. These guys had 80, we keep saying, they, they had 81 minutes to go through this entire uh, museum. Well, they really had as long as they wanted, they had but they only long, yeah. took 81 minutes. Right. And you look at the, uh, you look at the, the alarm report, these guards are tied up, and the alarm report comes through, and it's one uh, fifty-four in the morning, Dutch room. Uh, someone in the Dutch room, investigate immediately. Someone in the Dutch room, investigate immediately. A minute later, a minute later, a minute later. These alarms are going off, and no one's hearing them. They're, they're, these aren't alarms that are going to, uh, to the police. They're local alarms. These guys knew no one was coming. Stolen from the Gardner Museum art heist, the Rembrandt Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is his only seascape. And one of my favorite pieces, uh, looking at uh, the artwork that has been stolen. It's really a favor you can do for yourself to go and check out all of these pieces of artwork. Because I didn't realize how much I enjoyed Degas. Vermeer's The Concert is, at this time, the most expensive stolen piece of art in history. The Concert by Vermeer is really a great painting as well. Very awkward, kind of odd you see a man is uh, sitting and facing away from the painter completely, which is not a typical thing in, in art at all. And the other two, the, the women who are in it, are also not facing the painting at all or the artist at all. They're in, in their scene. So it's this voyeuristic view of this moment. When I was looking into the artwork, I didn't realize how much I would have enjoyed something like the piece uh, Procession on a Road Near Florence by Degas. You have to work for it when you look at this, his artwork. It, nothing, there's no sharp details. There's no sharp edges. It's, again, another, like, voyeuristic sort of take on something that's happening right in front of you. It's an everyday occurrence, and it's from, it's from the back. It's almost up on a hill. And you got to work to see this lady, I believe it's a lady, holding an umbrella. 
it's just probably i mean just revolutionary in in their time the artwork is exquisite and there's a manet too with uh a man writing something he's got a top hat and he's got a drink and he's kind of looking at the artist and it's really also just an amazing painting you can just stare at and think about what was the artist thinking and what is going on in this scene for hours it's called the che tortoni i know that people who listen to crawl space especially the uh seller series ones or the vault where we just kind of kind of go back and forth and you know riff a little bit might sound a little strange that we're we're talking on a <laughs> on a level of like this artwork but we do have taste you know we do have appreciation for for good quality artwork out there and once you look at this you'll see what we're talking about well before you can care about the story you have to care about the artwork i feel like you got to care about yes exactly with everything that you do before you every subject you do yeah so you you look at this and you realize this is such a loss right and one of the things we we've talked about and that has come up constantly since we've started research is, is did Whitey Bulger have his hands in this of course notable Boston mobster Whitey Bulger uh, who was arrested in 2011 is now in the clink um, but he was a mobster he, uh, the, the head of the Irish mob in Boston essentially the Winter Hill Gang the Winter Hill Gang which was a place I frequented Winter Hills in Somerville I grew up in Medford mere probably two or three miles from where I grew up. It's really kind of uh, irrational to think that something like this could happen in 1990 where Whitey Bulger was, you know, right up there. It was, it was probably the pinnacle of his power. Those, I mean, 70s, 80s, 90s, he, he pretty much was the, the kingpin, right? If this didn't have anything to do with him, it would be really amazing that he didn't find out who did this because this is this is on his turf. This is in his backyard. That's kind of our working theory, I think, right. about, about Whitey Bulger's involvement is that the crime itself may have been too amateur to have Whitey Bulger actually put forth the efforts to have this crime uh, take place. But if this crime would take place in his neighborhood, yes, he would absolutely throw his weight around and demand to find out who did it. And in those small neighborhoods, especially back then, South Boston, uh, Winter Hill, you know, people are talking. He asks questions. He's going to find out. And then he's going to want to wet his beak. And that's just the way it worked. You only have to look at the Boston Globe articles from the 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 days and weeks after the theft took place they're already putting it at over 100 million they're putting it at 200 million the the days and weeks after so if whitey had nothing to do with it he's not going to look at that number and say i want i I'm, I'm fine not having a piece of that i'm fine with with these guys uh taking my job essentially that's the way he would look at it if there's going to be a heist in boston that's going to be over 100 million dollars right off the bat before any proper assessment was done it's probably going to have some sort of Whitey Bulger attachment to it. If it doesn't, it will shortly thereafter. An obvious question that most people have when they first look into the case and they read the Wikipedia or if you go to the website, you see the, uh, the, the paragraph or two that they have. We have two security guards. One of them, Richard Abbott, was the one who stands out the most. He had long, curly hair. He was in a band. This was his night job. He would he would work there at night. He'd probably catch some uh, sleep during the day. He would 
gig out with his band. He was tied up. He was duct taped. He was duct taped all around his head. It was reported that um, he was told if he kept his mouth shut, he would get a little bit of money if he just waited. Like, you get a money in a year. In a year. You would get a gift. Right. And that gift never came. There's also a video that you can find on YouTube of uh, somebody who's coming into the museum. There's, there's words exchanged. It's a really choppy video. It's hard to tell what's going on. But that has led to the question that people have, like, this this could have been an inside job. But that was the night before the actual robbery. Yes, there was a video from the night before, of uh, and, and it's speculated that this is somebody sort of doing a dry run of pulling up, approaching, maybe talking to one of the security guards about this is how it's going to go down tomorrow night. That's a little too speculative if you ask me. There are cameras there. This person, if he was the thief or a master planner of this, I can't imagine they would have had that conversation right there. I understand the need to do a dry run, but there's cameras. Unless they, they planned on getting rid of the security tape. Exactly. But also not that odd for Abbott to have guests into the museum. He had before. Abbott actually brought some friends in for a New Year's Eve party as well so let his friends in and they kind of just hang out not steal anything not mess around always cleaned up but still it was you know very much against the rules and how how fun would that have been right because this is this is essentially a house it's like a really fancy house so yeah he probably had his bandmates in there he had his buddies in there and they had a couple of beers and like you said they always cleaned up and they were always respectful of it smoke a little pot maybe see i, I, I don't want to speculate well see, i don't want to speculate on any drug use that might have happened i mean it, i know he had long hair not even illegal these days in massachusetts to have a joint but uh, 1990 <laughs> well is the uh statute of limitations closed on that but uh the person that met with abbott the night before the robbery could have easily been someone who like a friend who was dropping off some uh some uh, herbs. It, it might not have been a uh, a person uh, mafioso relation who's looking at a doing the, a dry run here. It could have been something very simple, like Abbott buying a dime bag and the seller moving on. Yeah, and 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 it being kind of an embarrassing thing for Abbott to talk about, or maybe that's why it hasn't really come out publicly because it's it technically was illegal to do. What you're referring to is the security video from the night before the heist that. This was a uh, relatively new development in the case. It was released in August of 2015, the security video, which shows uh, the outside angle. It shows an automobile pull up to the Palace Road entrance of the museum. And this car matches the general description of a hatchback-type vehicle that was spotted the night of the heist almost 24 hours later. Now, this is the same type of car, same entrance, and the inside angle shows the unidentified man who had exited the car. He's allowed access into the building, uh, again, against uh, museum policy. Uh, He's allowed into the building by the security guard, and this happens, like I said, almost exactly 24 hours before the heist. That is an interesting point that this person who came in the night before was there for something uh, completely innocent, um, not related to the uh, to the crime at all. However, in, in 2015, an attorney by the name of George Burke received a call from somebody who recognized that person as a friend of one of the central characters in the theft, Miles Connor. And Miles Connor collaborated with Jenny Seiler on a book called The Art of the Heist. Miles Connor was a notorious thief, career criminal in the area and this uh this attorney george burke received a phone call 
from someone who said, I know that person and he's a friend of this career criminal. And we can provide a link to this video and to all of the uh, other reference materials that, uh, that, that we touch upon in this episode and every episode in the show notes. A very curious fact about this is in the Blue Room. Now, the Blue Room is where the Manet was stolen. The motion detectors detected footsteps at 12.27 a.m. and at 12.53 a.m. The 12.53 one was at least 10 to 15 minutes before we know the two thieves entered the museum in the first place. Only Abbott's steps as he made his rounds before the thieves arrived were picked up in that room. The censors also revealed that Abbott briefly opened the side door to the museum on Palace Road shortly before he buzzed the thieves in. He had also given his two weeks' notice to quit the job, which understandably cast suspicion. His explanation for opening and closing the door was that it was his way of double-checking to make sure it was locked. So he says. So he says. So here, here we have a bunch of empty frames hanging on the wall of one of the most distinguished museums on at least, at least New England, East Coast, you know, probably one of the most distinguished museums in America. And now you're going to hear from the mysterious Mr. K, why he contacted us and what this project is all about. Mr. K, why did you contact us? I listen to podcasts fairly infrequently, but uh, this past summer I was uh, introduced to the Maura Murray podcast. I believe that was July, and uh, it was something that I liked, I think, for the longer format discussion and analysis. I thought your uh, handling of the, the, the events was, uh, was great uh, in that you were you know, very insightful willing to look at all angles of this and not really pushing an individual narrative. So I, I thought it was uh, unique for that and uh, that this type of uh, somewhat exhaustive analysis could be good for the Gardner Project, which is uh, something that I was interested in. So uh, around September, I contacted you. I thought if there was something that uh, you were doing next, that this would be a great idea for you both. Well, I do remember the email that we received from you, and not to be intentionally um, mysterious by calling you Mr. K, there are reasons that uh, that you choose to be anonymous uh, due to your, um, you know, what you do in the real world and recording your, your voice and, you know, uh, so... To, to not be, I, I know it does sound intentionally mysterious. I am saying it to be intentionally it, mysterious. It, <laughs> this isn't because you you're, you fear any sort of implication or repercussion directly involving the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. That's correct, oh, right? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, I, uh, no, no involvement whatsoever. And in fact, uh, I wouldn't even consider myself an expert on the uh, subject. Okay. All right. I just wanted to clear that up because I know we're going to have people saying, where was Mr. K sure. on March 18th, 1990? Uh, the, the email that we received from you, 
is is something that was a bit unusual, but not so. We get a lot of unusual emails, um, and I think the the last line or one of the last lines of your email was what really uh, made me say we should talk to this gentleman because you said. I'm not. I'm not a weirdo. I promise, or, <laughs> or something to that effect. Right. And people who are weirdos typically don't uh, self-describe yeah, themselves. Yeah. You know, typically don't say I'm not what I really am. They're, they're the last to know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. If you can't find the weirdo on the bus, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I realized that it would be uh, so, sort of strange, but I, I thought this project was something that does have appeal. I think there are similarities to what you do with. Uh, Maura Murray's disappearance, and uh, I thought it was appropriate. I mean, there's a lot to look at, so it's it's a very complex issue. Uh, I think there are enormous uh, cultural repercussions from this, um, and you both struck me as uh, people who were, uh, I guess I would say, civic-minded uh, in that you were uh, handling a, a, a very difficult situation with Maura Murray's disappearance, uh, with with a great deal of respect for all the parties involved, and I thought that uh, that that was what this this needed. The situation with the Gardner theft, it's remarkable to me on so many levels. But one bizarre point is that uh, this has been researched so well by so many people. So if we look at the the principles involved in this. Uh, it, just so much has been done, and uh, I, I think this is something where uh, you, you two could could get involved and really supplement that in a meaningful way, but it wouldn't be something where you'd be starting from scratch. So I think essential to this is is what you tend to do, which is uh, to 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 you know very respectfully and collaboratively uh, engage uh, people. Uh, and, and work productively with them uh, toward, toward some kind of better understanding. When you look at the value, the estimated value of these 13 pieces of artwork, it ranges up to half a billion dollars. And there's a reward currently that runs out that the museum has put up of $10 million. And if you take aside the emotions when you're working on a missing person case and put that in and and put the cultural implications and the monetary value in the in place of that that is just as much stress the name whitey bulger strikes fear into the hearts of all bostonians and we know he's in jail but the reach is vast this is going to be something that is interesting and fascinating but why is it worth it? Why is it worth it? Sure. Um, well, so I guess to, to start at the beginning. So this is the largest property theft in history. And uh, as, as we've been discussing, it's obviously culturally important. So uh, among the 13 works that were taken were a Vermeer and uh, Rembrandt's only seascape. So uh, right there you have... A good portion of that value, whether you say it's uh, a half a billion or more, um, is is associated with those two pieces alone. And then, uh, you know, why 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 this? So I think this, like many things from 1990, is really fading from public awareness. And that uh, w- when I think of you know, kind of where we should be uh, in terms of uh, collective public awareness. I, I, I think, you know, it's not optimal to have 
that that state occur just given you know if we step back and look at what the Gardner Museum is so this this is someone's private collection that she had the uh, vision and uh, thoughtfulness to to make into a public museum this horrible thing occurred in 1990 and uh, everything everything changed uh, you know because of that and I, I think in in some way you know the public should be aware of this situation, and just given what how indebted we are for for that museum and and for the uh, the effort that uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner made, and then I also think uh, just looking at the number of people who have made this part of their daily life. I mean, to to go back to an earlier comment, there has been so much quality research done on this, and there there are people who really uh, you know have fixated on this for years. And uh, contrast that with, I, I would guess that ninety uh, percent of the general public doesn't know anything about this. And uh, so, I think that imbalance should be uh, should should be remedied a bit. And you know, I I, I do you know I, I know plenty of smart, responsible people who have no idea this happened and. I guess the last point I would make just about, you know, why this, why is it important? To, to me, it seems, um, uh, well, or, you know, forgetting about it or just leaving this issue completely unresolved is, is incongruent where, with where I think uh, Boston is today, uh, just in terms of, you know, other aspects of that city. So th- this is a world-class city with uh, some of the best hospitals in the world, some of the best universities in the world. Uh, it has biotech companies. It has management consulting firms. And it just seems uh, almost inappropriate to, to leave things as they are. And so I think uh, a project like this will build a lot of uh, public awareness of, of what went on. How did you find out about this? I would say a few things got me interested in uh, the Gardner Museum specifically, and, and one is just uh, the Vermeer. So I, I was able to see the Vermeer exhibit at the uh, Met Museum in New York in 2001, and I believe that had uh, 15 of his paintings, of which there were only uh, 35 or 36. So that was a very unique experience. And uh, it, it made me want to learn more about Vermeer and to understand where the Vermeers were globally. And uh, it got me to appreciate how rare, uh, the, the, obviously, any Vermeer painting is. And, and, you know, the concert is one of the, the best of them. And uh, this, this was just stolen, and no one knows where it is now. And... Uh, <laughs> It just it's intriguing to to consider that. So that stuck with me. Um, The the next thing I think was in 2005, 2006, there was a documentary by uh, Rebecca Dreyfus called Stolen. And I actually saw it in the theater just uh, by by chance. And it's it's an interesting story. So it looks at the events that happened and uh, some of the central figures at the time who were involved in the attempted recovery. And uh, I, you know, it was, it was something that intrigued me. uh, And, and I, you know, certainly there's a lot of kind of sensational uh, details about that, that, that stick with you. I mean, this is one of the things that uh, is, is remarkable about this situation is that uh, the, the crime itself and the aftermath is, is, so much like fiction that uh, it, 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 you know, I, I think when we're talking about 
do, do people remember this? I, I think there's this other component of do people even think this is real? I mean, they're, they're like, you, you can have this described to you and you think, oh, this is the plot of some movie or something like that and, and not really associate the, the, these things with real events. Uh, it all started with a bit of um, divine intervention. Right. Yeah, that that's true. And, and re- regarding the uh, the film, yes, that the film I actually didn't deliberately set out to uh, to watch. It was uh, it was one of these things where I was out and uh, it start it started raining, and the person I was with uh, and 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 I decided that the best thing to do was actually to go to 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 the theater uh, to to escape the rain, and we ended up seeing the documentary that way. So. Uh, it, it, it was a bit of that. In fact, I, I think the Vermeer exhibit in 2001 wasn't really deliberate either on my part. So, you know, I, I'm sure that was uh, something that people traveled uh, internationally to see because it was so rare. And I, I was just walking by the museum and uh, saw it and said, I have to go back and see this when I have free time. And I did just that. But uh, that, was, that was my level of awareness there. So. Why wouldn't the museum take down the empty frames? That is is the term of her will that uh, nothing be changed about the collection. So these these paintings have been stolen, and uh, the just the frames remain. Okay, Lance. So that wraps up episode one of Empty Frames. We have got a lot coming at you for the rest of this season. Now we are introducing this case to a new audience. Many people who don't know about it, or have only heard about it on a superficial level. Uh, With every case Tim and I research, we approach it understanding we are a vehicle for information and knowing it'll develop before us. And we're essentially going along wherever the road takes us, and we're all in on the ride together. So we need your help. Join us for the rest of the season. Listen to this show. The better the efforts by this community, the better chances we have to get the paintings back. Episode 1 of Empty Frames was brought to you by our wonderful sponsors, Cereal Box, HelloFresh, and ZipRecruiter. Thank you for listening to Empty Frames, a co-production of Crawlspace Media and Audio Boom. Original music by Jared Jensen and Kevin McLeod. Please learn more by going to EmptyFramesPodcast.com and CrawlspacePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Follow Empty Frames on Twitter at Empty underscore Frames. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Empty Frames Podcast. In two weeks, we are back with another episode. We talked to best-selling author of the book called The Gardener Heist. His name is Ulrich Boser, and here's a quick clip from episode two. Here's what we can say, I think, with a high degree of confidence. Someone on the inside helped the thieves. I feel like the evidence is very clear for that, and we can walk down what it is. But from the fact that the thieves stayed in the museum for so long, that they robbed a very specific corner of the museum, taking a security tape from the security office's room, and the fact that generally these museum robberies have some type of, of inside angle. And when you look at the evidence you know, that uh, implicates him, I mean, it is, it is more circumstantial Uh, Some of it is just that he's a kooky character, and kooky characters don't necessarily produce thefts. They just might be a little kooky.